Hello, and welcome to Big Sound Small Town. I'm your host, Sandy Carlton. The small towns and communities of Cleveland County, North Carolina have long been a hotbed of music in all its many forms. Several Cleveland County musicians have found commercial success and critical acclaim in the music industry. Yeah, everybody knows the Earl Scruggs, Don Gibson, Patty Loveless, and Alicia Bridges are from Cleveland County. Donald Byrd, too. So this is not a podcast about them. This is a podcast about the musicians who are still here to keep music alive here. This is the stories, and you need to know them and know the people who are making the music. This is not, this is not your normal podcast. Michael Lynch was kind enough to host Big Sound Small Town in his home in Shelby, North Carolina. Mike is a talented bluegrass guitarist and a talented singer. And he is a guy with some very interesting stories. He knows a lot of music history and he has, again, some very interesting stories. Listen up. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you for having me here today. I'm glad to have you. All right, where do you want to start? Well, I guess we'll uh, start at the beginning of how I became interested in music. I guess it was my first experience with uh, live music was my dad. He took up guitar, and uh, uh, he had some friends around Shelby. He took lessons from Ray Ledford, like a lot of folks did back then, and we would go to uh, friends' houses and... uh, they would sit around and play and sing, so uh, I've always felt that if you want to get a child interested in music, early exposure to live music in a really close personal space is uh, some kids are just hooked when they hear an instrument. Actually can be close enough to feel it, not only just hear it, but actually feel it. And so uh, also uh, my... uh, Grandmother, one of her sisters was married to Mac Crow, who was known as the Banjo King of the Carolinas. And I remember going to his house. My dad actually bought an old Gibson guitar from him, which I wish we still had. And uh, so I got to sit in the room and listen to Mac play. 
And uh, he actually owned a Gibson banjo that is probably one of the most revered banjos in the country. Jim Mills owns oh, it now. Okay. And, uh, but Mac was a, a real character. He was sort of a little vaudeville and, and a great banjo player. So that was my early experiences. And uh, later on, when uh, about the time the Beatles came, I'm, like, I'm that generation that that's the first time that music really, I started really paying attention. And I uh, got a ukulele, baritone, Kent uke, and a Beatles songbook for Christmas one year that came from Shelby Music Center. I guess it's Shelby Jury and Lone back then. Yeah, and by the end of Christmas Day, I had learned two Beatle tunes and was playing and singing the ukulele. So that's, that was my early experiences. And then from then on, kind of went toward guitar. Now, now once you started playing guitar, I, seemingly you started listening with bluegrass, I take it. No, not really. Uh, I, I, outside of that little bit with Matt Crow hearing the banjo, I'd never really been exposed to bluegrass music. And so I had, uh, I guess to move on further into the story, I, uh, at some period of time there uh, over at Cleveland Technical Institute, it was called at that time, Ted Cash was an instructor over there and he was giving some guitar lessons. And I could play fairly well by then, but I didn't know what I was doing. And I thought it might help me to, to go. And Ted was a very good instructor. He understood the instrument. And so we kind of connected. And he came to uh, my, I was living with my parents. And he came to the house one day to pick a little bit. And we were sitting in there playing music. And he just happened to mention, he said, do you ever pick with any of these guys up the street? And I said, who? I didn't know there was anybody around here playing music. He said, oh, yeah, a bunch of guys get together. So he said, I'll line it up and take you up there. So wasn't long after that, he called me, and uh, we'd go up just a block from where I live. And Mitchell Self and his wife, Glenda, lived there. So on that day, I met Mitchell, uh, Bud McSwain, and Steve Royster. And uh, bringing up the rear, who was always the last one to show up, was David Martin. <laughs> and David gets out of his international scout with his banjo with a big cowboy hat and a great big knife on his side in a sheath. And I'm thinking, I'm not too sure about this character, you know. Well, you playing Beatles tunes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but uh, after I met him, he seemed harmless. <laughs> and uh, so we went in, and it's just amazing. And one day, I had three or four new friends, and we were playing music like we'd known each other for years. So uh, I have to give a special thanks to Ted Cash for introducing me to them guys. So David was really my first experience playing with a banjo. Yeah. And we were playing some old tunes like Pig in the Pen and the bluegrass kind of stuff. And uh, so that was a, that was a a real turning point for me in, in the direction I went in music, yeah. That's good then, and actually, um, that was some lifelong friends. Exactly, exactly, then I, I later through them met Daryl Allison and, and some other folks, so yeah, I made lifelong friends and we had a lot of, a lot of good times together. So at some point, me and David, uh, David, a lot of folks don't know, he was a banjo player, but I, uh, he was also a really good guitar player, finger picker. And me and him uh, got to where we would get together uh, some weeknights. Uh, he lived up there in Lattimore, and I was working an evening shift somewhere. I'd get off work about 9 o'clock at night, and 
we wouldn't start picking till 10, 10.30, pick to 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. And we sit around and uh, we thought we could play Eagle songs. You know, we didn't know any better if they were too hard. So, so we actually played some of them. And we had a lot of fun and uh, we would record things. And uh, so, and then somewhere along in all of that, we, uh, we still were wanting to play a little bluegrass. And uh, Mitchell played the mandolin with us for a year or so. And we met uh, a guy over at Cleveland Tech. At that time, they were having a little bluegrass thing over there. And we met a guy. Actually, I went to school with him, but didn't know he played music. It was Eddie Biggerstaff. Yeah. And Eddie was there and had a bass. And uh, so we, we picked a little bit of him, and we, we kind of liked the way that sounded. So uh, from there, that's how Brushy Creek, okay. uh, the, that's really the first band I was ever in. That's how that came to be. And started out with uh, me and Eddie and Mitchell and David. Yeah. And uh, after Mitchell left the group, that's when uh, uh, Robert Ramsey yeah who uh, was, uh, he was more like our dad's age, you know, at the time. And he was very experienced, good fiddle player. And years later, after watching Porter Wagner shows, I realized that he was just Mac McGahey made over. I could tell that's where he he learned and uh, his mannerisms, and he knew tons of instrumentals. And it wasn't too much long. We played together four-piece for a while, and then his brother, Thurman Ramsey, who was a great banjo player but we already had a banjo so uh thurman goes up to shelby music center and buys him an aria pro 2 mandolin and become the mandolin player (laughs) all you gotta do is just go buy an instrument and you're in a band and And thurman played the mandolin like no one i have ever seen he played with finger picks like the banjo and it sounded like the uh jesse Oh, the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounded like his his style, you know, and uh, and was I mean, it just blew people away. It was totally different, and it was just his style. Oh, and so we had, we had a lot of fun as Brushy Creek. We played together probably started around seventy eight, probably went through around eighty two, and uh, played a lot of fillers conventions. You know, we we had a lot of first place wins and those and just. Just a lot of fun. We practiced two nights a week in the barbershop at Lattimore, and we always had an audience, so uh, it kept us on our toes and made made for a good practice. You know what? I mean, those are all quality musicians. Yeah. <laughs> and it turned out to be that way. Right, right. Yeah, we were lucky in in uh, in getting around some musicians that were seasoned and and knew much more than we did. And two other people that I, I want to mention is uh, Hoyt and Nars Brooks. Yeah. Uh, they're brothers, and uh, uh, Hoyt could play the guitar just exactly like Lester Flat. He played the rhythm with the thumb pick. He was just solid as a rock, and his brother played the banjo just like Earl Scruggs. I mean, it just, you close your eyes, and, and their timing was perfect. And they just gave us a lot of guidance over the years and, and uh, told us, you know, little pointers. They were just so uh, we learned a lot from them and as how to play bluegrass. That was a good bluegrass band. Yeah. The best bluegrass band around. Yeah, well, I don't know about that, but we, we, we practiced hard and we tried to have good timing. And uh, we, we, we certainly enjoyed it. And, I mean, we'd go to Norris and Hoyts and – I, I even played a little bass with them over the years just to just, just to get to pick with them. They were they were such good musicians. They did all the old 
Jimmy Martin tunes yeah. and uh, and Earl Scruggs and uh, Foggy Mountain Boys. That stuff they they played. Well, and you were getting you were getting a bluegrass education. Oh, big time! Year. Yeah, big time. Yeah. And uh, so uh, yeah, we were we were real lucky. So then, what happens? Okay, well, Brushy Creek. We played like I say up and through about 1982, somewhere along in there, and uh, sort of, you know, a band usually runs a cycle. We, we, we'd about done what, what we could do, and uh, so we, we quit, and... and uh, Did you play the Acres by this point with them? Uh, oh, yeah, Brushy Creek played the Acres many times. That's where I was going with that, you played the Acres with these guys. Well, let's, uh, let's stick that into the story okay, also before we, before we move on. Uh, yeah, we, uh, I had heard, you know, every bluegrass band, after they learn 15 songs, they're looking for somewhere to play. And I was the same way. And I'd heard about a music hall out there uh, up in the country, and somebody gave me some directions. This is before Google Maps, you know. So I proceed to drive up there one Saturday and get lost in the rain. And yeah, and I ended up at some little service station, you know, with a naked light bulb out front. And the guy tells me, oh, yeah, you passed it. It's about 10 miles back that way. So I find the acres finally and go in. And at that time, it's country music dance hall. And I ask around and find out who runs it and who happened to be Niall Cuthbertson, uh, a giant of a man, uh, literally. He was a pulp wood cutter, and uh, I was very intimidated to go up to him. And he, he played in the band there. He played country music and loved country music. Well, I during the break, I introduced myself to him. We sat down on some chairs there, and I proposed of having a bluegrass show there. I said, have you ever considered having a bluegrass band? He said, well, son, if you want to play some bluegrass here, that would be just wonderful. You just tell me when you want to do it. So I, from that time on, he was a, a wonderful friend. He, he treated me so nice and kind, and uh, so I decided that we needed another band, not just uh, try to do it on our own. So at that time, there was a, a band in Rutherford County playing bluegrass, uh, the Broad River Boys. And so I approached them, and they said, yeah, that'd be great. Let's do it. So uh, we made flyers and put up a big sign in front of the acres, and uh, and uh, I think Niall was really proud of the fact that we were going to do this, you know, and, and making a big deal out of it. And come the night of the show, it was it was in December, best I remember, and it was really cold. And he had the wood stove. He told me he'd come out there extra early, built a fire, so it would be nice and warm. And, I, and all these people were strangers to him that came to this. It wasn't his regular crowd. So he was trying to make his best impression. Well, about ten minutes before time to play, some kind of backdraft or something on the stove and literally fill the building with smoke. You couldn't see, you know, more than a foot from the floor. So everybody has to go outside and we're all going in there with paper bags or whatever, trying to fan the smoke out of the building. Poor old Nile embarrassed him so much, but we told him, don't worry about it. So after we got the smoke cleared, we had the show and it was just a, a great success. And for years, Niall always told me, you know, boys, Mike, y'all was the first bluegrass band to play at Green Acres. That's something to be proud and, of. And he was proud of it, and he wanted us to be proud of that. And I, and I am. You know, we didn't realize maybe we were making history. We just looking for somewhere to play. But it turned out that way that it, 
it transitioned from that point being a country music dance hall to a sit down and listen, more of an acoustic and a bluegrass hall. It never did. No, it never did. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, I guess he realized a good thing when he saw it too. yeah, between that and then uh, him partnering up with Steve and Donna Medcalf, then that's the rest is history, you know. And some of the best musicians in the country have played there, and and it was always my favorite place to play. Still, still is mine, yeah, mine of every place I've played about my because you had an audience there that came to hear your music you know they didn't they didn't come to play pool or pinball machines or watch sports on tv it was a, a music loving audience and all friends and you wanted to do your best you know a lot of folks there you knew personally and you uh you just wanted to come in there and and, and have a good show so uh something that is rare today but something that was has always been rare i mean green acres was a rare yes a gift to a musician, really. Exactly. I mean, uh, you you can count on your fingers the number of places all around the United States that you can play and have response like you had there. That's People right. That's right. Listen. They were music lovers. That's right. And stand on the porch during intermission and, and have a conversation with Peter Rowan <laughs> and Norman Blake, which I did, you know. Yeah, I, I and... I've stood and ate a hot dog with Norman Blake and talk about music, you know. Where else Where else can you do that? And, uh, and that's the thing, too. The artists seemed to mingle when they came there. Too. They, they did. They did not feel threatened in any way. And, uh, and, uh, I mean, they felt comfortable there, too. And I think the people, exactly. The, the people that were there were music lovers, so they made them feel comfortable. And, of course, Nile and Steve, they made... Yeah, they were, Steve was just, uh, you know, he could, uh, he was just a wonderful person to be around and, and knew how to make people feel comfortable. And, uh, but yeah, I, I think at the time I knew it was special, but I don't think I realized just how special. Yeah. I, and, I, I, uh, I think you, it's one of those things that probably it had to end before we all realized how special it was. I, that's right. Uh, I, there's very few Saturday nights that there was a band there that I didn't go. And uh, unless I was playing somewhere, I was there. And I heard uh, so many good bands through there. I just can't, I wouldn't even begin to name them because I'd leave somebody out. But I know, I'm the same way, and it's a long list. Right. And it's a long list of local good musicians and national acts. That's right, that's right. So I guess you go from uh, uh, the Brushy Creek Band, where where we were at at that point, Oh, oh, yeah, I was going to show you that. Uh, we'll, we'll do that, and then we'll move on in. Uh, back uh, when I was learning to play guitar, uh, I started wanting to learn how to flat pick. And uh, most people know most flat pick instrumentals are pretty peppy and hard to listen to. All you had was a record, and... Uh, no digital recording of any kind, no way to slow anything down, speed it up, whatever, you know. And uh, and I had an untrained ear and uh, trying to, to learn some Norman Blake flat picking, Tony Rice, early Tony Rice, uh, Doc Watson. Let's pick some hard stuff, Mike Lark. Yeah, <laughs> and I thought there's got to be a better way. If I, I thought if I can hear the note, uh, and then maybe I can, can play it, so... I had this idea, so I, I had a cassette player at home, and I got out uh, my albums and picked out some instrumentals that I that I wanted to learn. 
So I recorded them from my uh, album onto a cassette. Well, then I took the cassette one night up to my buddy David Martin. And uh, he had a whole stereo system set up there in his trailer with a cassette deck. And he had a reel-to-reel. -reel. I'd never owned one of those. And reel-to-reels have two speeds. They have three and three quarters and seven and a half. So I had the bright idea. We put this cassette with these instrumentals and recorded it onto his reel-to-reel -reel at seven and a half. Then we put a blank cassette in the cassette player and turned the speed to three and three quarters, ran it back onto the cassette. Now you have it half speed and an octave low. So you have to keep in your mind as you're learning this that there, there's a whole octave, it's a whole octave low. You're, you'll be in tune with it, but you're going to be an octave low. So uh, I, I'd never really, I've, I've told people this story, but I never really, uh, you know, demonstrated exactly what it sounded like. So I located this tape before you came over a couple days ago and uh, proceeded to break the tape. <laughs> So then I had to do microsurgery, which I've not worked on a cassette tape in many years, but uh, I did get it back together and got it playing again. And the tape is just shy of being 40 years old. This was done in 79. But this, this one song on here, I'll just show you a, a quick demonstration of it. This is early Tony Rice. I had, uh, I had Billy and the Low Ground, Red Haired Boy, Beaumont Rags, stuff like that. Well, this first song is Billy and the Low Ground, and it's Tony Rice. And... Uh, I'll just play you a short portion, and you can hear what it sounds like. I wish I had both to compare at full speed, but I, I don't. These are all slowed down, so I think this will be Beaumont Rag right here. Well, maybe I need to, maybe I need to turn the tape over. I bet that could be the problem. Got the, boy, it'd be hard to learn it from that, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, that's kind of the way you were learning it. Here we go, here we go. I, I think this I'm afraid to fast forward to rewind. We may we may be out of business again. Let's see. <laughs> it's coming, I promise you. I just I just kept in mind that it was an octave octave low. Yeah, yeah, I mean it really blends real well. You're in tune, you know, but that way you could distinctly hear each note. And I'm so glad I'd saved that tape all these years so to, to show somebody the effort that we would go to to try to learn something. You know, every generation has had more to build upon. You know, you first first musicians 
they were just lucky if they lived within walking distance of somebody that could play something. And then you had to listen to it on a battery radio, the Grand Ole Opry. Now, how well could you hear that one time? And then, uh, you know, move the album needle back and forth. And uh, the eight track wasn't much help. And uh, cassette was a great thing. When that came along, that helped. Yeah. And, uh, and now you can slow it down and keep your pitch and, and, and variable speed. But that was just a way in the day to. Uh, and then, of course, these days you can go on YouTube and. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That, I think that's why there's such an, just an explosion of fabulous young musicians right now. I'd say the, the leap to the internet and the YouTube has just. Uh, uh, taking it light years, and, and uh, I, it's just amazing the people I hear playing out how how good they are at such a young age. They are, they are, and as with anything, learning at an early age makes it so much easier to learn. Right, and to get better at it. Exactly. Now, there's also that debate about whether they play too many notes to fit the song. Yes, yes. I hear that everywhere I go, the hot pickers, but do they really understand what they're playing? Well, from uh, most experiences that I've had is the younger musicians, they they tend to start off playing, especially if they got the ability, they play too many notes and play too fast. Sure. Play and, But as they grow older and get seasoned, then they start thinking about the choice of notes and the tone. Right. And when you, when, you, when you drift into that tone and uh, start working on your tone, and, and they all get there. We were all that yeah, way. You know, we all play, just tried to play every note we possibly put in the song, whether it fit the song or not. And the same way with singing. I think mm -hmm. every singer I knew sang at least uh, a step too high when they first started. You know, I'm definitely guilty of that. Yes. And, uh, so where does the story go from here? Okay, yes. Uh, like I say, Brushy Creek, I guess we disbanded sometime around 82. And uh, myself and uh, the, the bass player and tenor singer, Eddie Biggerstaff, we still were wanting to pursue traditional bluegrass. And we remembered a banjo player that had come down to some of our practices at Brushy Creek. Uh, actually, somebody brought him down. He wasn't but 15. Uh, he lived up around Sandy Mush area, and his name was Roger Holland. And uh, just one of the best banjo players up to this day that I've ever played with. Uh, and so the three of us just started getting together and playing some, uh, hoping we would find the fourth member. And uh, so we decided, even though we didn't have a full band, they were having a fiddler's convention at Mooresville. They had an annual fiddler's convention there. And, Three of us went back in a room and tuned up and were playing some. And uh, 
happened to look out the doorway and uh, there was a, a guy standing there holding a mantling case. And Roger, who is a man of few words, <laughs> yeah, he is. took it upon himself. He stopped playing and walked out into the hallway and he said, do you play the mandolin? And the guy sort of said something like, no, I just walk around carrying one. <laughs> but then he said, yeah, yeah, I play the mandolin. And Roger said, how about stepping in here? <laughs> and so, that is a lot of words from him. Yes, yeah, yeah, I could not believe uh, that, that Roger uh, took that upon himself, but he, he, was, he was wanting to play music. Obviously he was. So this, this, uh, this young man uh, was from the Troutman area, and his name was Tim Perry. And he had quite a bit of experience, uh, trying to remember, so I can't give you some names of bands, but he had been in bands and was an experienced uh, bluegrass mandolin player and uh, had an extraordinary chop. He, he kind of patterned his chop after Sam Bush, and uh, so he, he just had an extraordinary chop. Well, anyway, he comes into the room, and we start playing, and within about 45 minutes, I mean, we got a band. We're ready to go. And... Uh, I don't know who was more excited, us or him, but we were all it was just like, it was just fate that, uh, that we stumbled upon each other and uh, we entered the Fiddler's Convention. You know, I don't remember how it came out, but we played that night. And uh, so from that period of time for, I don't I guess we went on up to about in the early 90s, but uh, uh, Tim would drive over from Troutman and we would practice and sometimes we'd go over there, but he did most of the traveling and uh, I know uh, that was a, a big thing on his part, but uh, we, uh, we, we had a pretty good band. Uh, we, we were tight and uh, we were influenced. We, you know, it's, it's one thing to find a group of people to play bluegrass with, but when you find three or four other individuals that hear it the same way and want to play the same style of bluegrass. There's a big difference between, uh, say, Flat and Scruggs and Mac Wiseman and Jim and Jesse. And, I mean, you go down the it list. Is, and It's more complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the word bluegrass is just a generalization. And But we all loved J.D. Crow in the New South. And and uh, and then later uh, the the Doyle Lawson the first generation of the Doyle Lawson Quicksilver band that that's the sound that we heard in our heads and so we all went toward that as to how we wanted to to, to play and sound and uh, we entered quite a few competitions and and played a lot of shows you know we uh, we tried to book ourselves quite a bit and. Uh, Tim came in one time to practice there. This was in 1984 and uh, wanted to enter us in a national competition. It was the Kentucky uh, Fried Chicken Bluegrass Showdown in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, at that time, you made a cassette tape <laughs> and put four or five tunes on it and mailed it in. And so I thought we were wasting our time, but we did it anyway. We recorded some tunes and mailed it in. No, I don't. <laughs> I just, I just know that I, I didn't expect to ever hear anything else from it. And Tim calls us up all excited that we had been selected, us and five other bands, to compete in this thing. And it was a combination festival and a competition. Oh, that's, oh, that's cool. The Tony Rice unit was on at that time, which they were probably as hot as oh, you know they ever were. I mean, and uh, I can't name some of the bands off the top of my head, but it was a, it was a truly huge festival and you went to Louisville, yes we had to go to louisville kentucky and this was held 
at the Galt House, I believe was the name, hotel. This thing's right on the river there. And uh, this thing was on like the fourth or fifth floor of a parking deck. But they had trees growing up there and everything. You didn't, you didn't realize you were on a parking deck. Huge stage, huge sound system. And I remember the, uh, one of the judges was Peter Rowan. And I'm wanting to think maybe Mike Compton might have been. I'm not sure, but it was pretty much uh, seasoned professional musicians were the judges. Well, we arrive at the Galt House and uh, go in there to check in. And over on a sofa there in the little waiting area was a, a girl, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, and man, just playing the fire out of the fiddle. And I looked at him, guys, I said, if this is the competition, we're in trouble. <laughs> Because she was really good. So uh, we compete, and uh, we actually came in second place. I think the band Radio Flyer won it. We came in second. And uh, the third place band, I remember uh, this girl was in that band, and they played a, a real progressive type of bluegrass, and they were better musicians than we were, but I think they maybe didn't appeal to the traditional judges, you know, you just can't judge music. I'm sorry. It's not a good thing to judge music. Anyhow, uh, my dad had recorded all of the bands that competed on a big boom box. He took a bunch of cassette tapes and D-cell batteries, you know, and uh, I'd never listened to any of it till many years later. And uh, I decided to go back and listen to some of those bands we competed against. We came in second place, though, and I was very proud of that. But uh, I go back and I'm listening to these bands. Well, uh, I listen to this third place band and uh, they were introducing themselves on stage and the girl turned out to be Alison Krauss, <laughs> who by the time I listened to this was pretty famous, you know. So I could always say, well, I beat Alison Krauss. But uh, I guess she got even in the long run. She came on with a great career, but uh, I, I just about fell in the floor when I thought, no wonder she was so good then. I also she got pretty upset that she did not win the competition. Yeah, I hate, I hate to mention that, but uh, <laughs> we went backstage, and I remember her sort of kicking her fiddle case all the way across the room. <laughs> but, uh, but she turned out to do so much for bluegrass music. She really, her band really brought it to the masses. Did, and, she, have, did she have that same band? That oh, no, no. I, I don't. I don't know if any of those people, like I say, they, I, I remember it being a kind of a, almost a new grass revival type music she was playing. I don't even remember if she sang and that's hard to believe, but, uh, oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So that was, uh, that was pretty much the pinnacle of, of crossfire as far as competitions, you know, and, uh, and that was a lot of fun. I remember the, the, the best part of that whole experience for me, we had the backstage passes. I got to stand just shoulder to shoulder as the Tony Rice unit was warming up and stood right beside of Tony and, and listened to him play. And uh, I'll never forget that. It wasn't disappointing to, either, was it, it? No, sir. <laughs> to, to hear it like that as opposed over a sound system and, and to stand beside him and hear what he could actually do, you realize why he's – yeah, he is, uh, will always be my favorite guitar player. Yeah, forever. Uh, he just, uh, 
he and, had a, and a real pioneer too. Oh I yes, people realize what a pioneer because he could do traditional as good as anybody, but he could branch himself out. Too. That's right. That's right. He uh, he really expanded when he went into got involved with Grisman yes. and, and the quintet. And uh, but I'd say that he is every bit has been influential for the the bluegrass guitar as Earl Scruggs was on the banjo and Bill Monroe on the mandolin. So. Because guitar playing changed after Tony Rice did, came about. Totally he showed people that uh, that it you could actually play uh, bluegrass lead on a guitar. And, and you know, before him, I, Lester Flat would be the pinnacle of, of yeah, guitar playing. That's right. Was, that's right. Runs. Right. The only only lead players really around much at that time was uh, 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 Doc, Watson yeah, Doc Watson and and then Clarence White. Let's don't forget White. Clarence White. And uh, and Norman Blake was, and outside of that, they just weren't many people. Dan Crary, yeah, Dan, and, but, but Dan uh, had a whole different. That's right. That's right. Another another funny story about uh, Tony Rice. Uh, I had went up to Norris Brooks' house, who I mentioned in the the first episode there, and uh, I had been listening to uh, Jim and Jesse and the Kentucky Colonels, bands like that, and uh, Norris. He said. Now, Mike, they ain't nothing wrong. Them's all good bands now. That's good music, he said. But I got something in here I want you to hear, and you tell me what you think about it. So we walked into the living room to the big Zenith console stereo, you know, about the length of a coffin. And uh, he uh, got an album out of a cover, and I'm pretty sure there was a nickel taped on the tone arm. I'm not positive, but... He puts the album on, and the song is J.D. Crow in the New South, the old home place. And I stood there and couldn't hardly breathe. And when Tony Rice took that guitar break that, to this day, I can't figure out how he did that break, I was forever changed. Right there was when I knew the type of bluegrass I wanted to play. So. Early <laughs> yeah, Brown, Brown yeah. I had never heard a band with that much talent and power, you know, uh, know to 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 play that type of music. And and I was a fan of of, of Crow's music. Uh, I'd say his best bands were probably when Keith Whitley was a member and and his lead singing. And uh, so, but like I say, that was a turning point when I heard that Rounder album of the Old Home Place. <laughs> That, that is a head-turning album. Yes. Oh gosh, uh, it's it's a it's definitely a classic. And Jetty Crow seemed to grow musicians. He, exactly. He uh, he was as good at at, at make, putting a band together as Dole Lawson. You know, both yeah, of those well, that's, are that's, that's they are that's one of their big talents outside of being a good musician is to put a band together. Well, they've yeah. had. I mean, you can't even begin the name of all the acts. That's oh no. Any musician that went through either one of those bands came out a professional. They did. And, they did. Uh, and, and, and those people influenced other. Exactly. You know, Lou Reed, Terry Balkum, you know, you go on down the list of, of the folks. Jerry Douglas. Jerry uh, Douglas, that's right. Oh, well, Ricky Skaggs. Yeah, Jimmy Goodrow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all those, All those people. Uh, all have a group of people spawn off of them. Keith Whitley. Exactly. Probably not a better bluegrass singer to ever lived, in my opinion. Not only that, oh, he's a great bluegrass singer. 
But he actually turned out to be a really good country singer. Oh, man, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, that's a talented man. And that's what I liked about that period of time with Crow and them. They, they, uh, they dabbled in country and, and, and included a lot of that in, into their sets. And I, and I got to where uh, we didn't do it so well. We did in, in Crossfire. We did some uh, Gene Watson tunes, Speak Softly, You're Talking to My Heart, a few tunes like that. And uh, then the, the, the last band that I was involved in, uh, we, we, did, we did more of that. I, I found that Buck Owens had a lot of tunes. Uh, uh, Love's Gonna Live Here, uh, My Heart Skips a Beat. I mean, you go on down the list, Hello Trouble. Uh, and uh, we had a guy stand in our band one time, and we did a bunch of those. And he said, man, I like playing. Y'all said, these songs make you want to smile. And, and I always thought that was a good compliment. And uh, so I got to where I really liked uh, to, to do a good mixture of that. And, uh, and that band uh, came about uh, after, after Crossfire ended. Uh, we all went our separate ways, and we all still continued playing music and, and all still friends. You know, it wasn't, wasn't that we didn't get along anymore. You know, like I said, a band runs a cycle. You just run a cycle, and, and it's time to move on. And so we put a little band together there again uh, with uh, Roger Holland, the banjo player. And it's kind of funny as a man that I had worked with for 30 years at UPS found out his son played the bass and played bluegrass. And his name's Gary Epley. Okay. Lived in Ellenborough. And then found out there was a, another musician that lived within walking distance of him, Jamie Spratt. Okay. And he plays banjo, fiddle, guitar, pretty much anything you put in his hands. And good singer. Well, then Jamie knew a mandolin player, uh, uh, Jared Spencer is his name, and he is from Calpin, South Carolina. Good mandolin player and a really good singer. Had a really unique voice, and uh, so we put a band together and and played. I I don't know about two years, I guess. And uh, so that's kind of was the last of my band band playing experience. It hadn't been in anything the last few years. And but you still play. Oh yeah, still still play and uh, occasionally uh, get to play some with uh, with Darren Darren Aldridge uh, when he's in town. Uh, we always enjoyed picking together and uh, we'll have some jam sessions and and uh, so it's always a treat to to do that. And uh, well, you still play with David ever? Not too much. Yeah, not too not much. much no, no, not 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 much anymore. And. Uh, Still, still get together and talk to him quite a bit, you know. And he still loves music. He uh, probably has as much natural talent as anybody I ever met. And uh, I agree, he is a very talented. Yes. Person. Well, this is a great story, Mike. And I, I'm not even going to push you for some of the other stories that I know you have. <laughs> I'm going to run a different podcast called "These Might Be Lies." Right. Oh, I'm good at that. <laughs> yeah. So, I do appreciate you taking the time. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, including me in this, and I look forward to hearing the interviews from uh, the other musicians here in the county because uh, that's another thing we were really lucky about is there were so many good musicians here. And, I, yeah, I don't want to let this end without mentioning uh, a really good friend that was sort of the – he was sort of the hub of the wheel of bluegrass right here, and that was Dr. Bobby Jones. Oh, yeah, Bobby Jones. He, he uh, was – that's a person that I can't get. I know, I know. There's been a lot of these people that 
this came too late that I'd really love to have. Right. But but he did he did a lot for bluegrass and just music in general for this town. Exactly. Uh, Bobby loved bluegrass uh, more than anybody that I guess I've ever met and. Uh, you know, uh, we we had all these little bluegrass bands around here, and and there was uh, it was good natured, but there was always a little rivalry. So we didn't really intermingle like we should have. We would all have learned a lot more and had a lot more fun if we would have intermingled more and 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 jammed together more. We you get in your little band and you get off to the side. But Bobby was one of those that could move around from the different groups and come and be a friend and and pick with. So. Uh, we we lost so much when we, and as far as bluegrass in Cleveland County when we, when we lost Dr. Bobby. Well, that is one of the things I'll always have to say is I go places and I see people's jam up bluegrass band. Right. And I think to myself, man, there's ten of those in Cleveland County. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, there I, there was so, a, so I mean there's there's always and still to this day there's good bluegrass here in Cleveland County exactly as well as all the other types of music too. Yeah, this, no. is, this is a good music location and I'm so proud that that, that we have the Earl Scruggs Museum on our court square I never thought that I would uh, see the day that I would get to stand and play music in that in that museum and that that was a real honor I've done that several times and uh, yeah uh, that is, that is um, that is one of, musically that is one of the things that is has been great for this county that's right uh, it also helps really solidify the fact that uh cleveland county is a is really a music hub yeah when you think of the fact that that earl scruggs was from this area and don gibson yeah. uh that's that's for a town the size of shelby that's something to to be proud of if you think that the disco queen was here alicia bridges yeah yeah and then then Course, Patty, Patty Lovelace, Ex so, exactly. I there's, there's, I am now uh, Josh McSwain, but there you has, go. He's a member of Parmalee, and yeah, that's uh, well, well when we were when we were talking about the, I'm talking about uh, getting children at an early age yeah. in some live music. Well, he was an example that I was thinking of, and I'll tell that real quick. Uh, we were getting together at, at Bud and Connie's house. Uh, I think at that time they lived in a, in a house up Highway 226. But we'd go over there and jam. And, there, and Josh was just a toddler. And Steve Royster cut him out a fiddle out of just a, like a piece of pine, just solid. And I remember him walking around in the middle of us and playing that fiddle. And so that's proof positive. It that is. that you get exposed to that bug early and and now he's out here traveling country professional musician there's a couple of things that i've learned from doing some of these things is uh cleveland county over the years a lot of the musicians here grew up sitting under a mill house uh porch yep. listening to music and being that close which exactly totally backs up what you're saying they were kids and they could not wait to move to the porch yeah you know, yeah underneath it i mean yeah so, so yeah exposure to live music when you're young is i think i do too and and, and it's got to be closer than at the concert it does. that that's oh, better it does. than record at a concert but uh, there's nothing like I, I remember early experiences of going in at Shelby Jury and Loan and somebody really good and sitting in there playing. I remember going into the music store in Gastonia and that, uh, that Carol, his last name, a great guitar player. And uh, to, to actually get close enough to feel it. Uh, is told me the whole reason he became a musician is Red Foley had done a show in Charlotte. Yep. Yeah. And 
a woman who lived down the street was an invalid, couldn't go out, and a radio station, con uh, she contacted a radio station, and he came wow. to Shelby, brought his whole band and went in her, her kitchen and played, and he said, I stood next to Red Foley, and from that time That on, would do it. That was, I yep. never wanted to be anything else. Yeah, he yeah. Said, I had to be, you know, I had to get some jobs before I could do it professionally, but that set me for my whole life. I it, think that's what I wanted to I do. totally believe that. There's a certain energy that, that comes out of, of somebody performing music when you're standing right beside of them and, and can hear them. There's just something it just, uh, it, it'll, it, some people maybe it doesn't affect, but other people it just gets all over you. You can't get it out of you. You're the type that, that seems predestined to do that. Yep. Then you, that is, that's the turning point. Exactly. The bad thing is, call it a blessing or call it a curse. <laughs> yeah. You're stuck with it the rest of your life. That's right. Time. That's exactly you're right. Our age, what are we doing? Yeah. Talking Still talking music. Playing music. I mean, a lot of people look at it as a blessing, and it is a lot of a blessing. It is. It is. I feel so fortunate to have played music. It's absolutely the most enjoyment that I've ever gotten out of life is is being in these bands and going out and playing and and having people come up and tell you how much they enjoyed it. You know, it just makes you feel so good, and so I wouldn't trade that for any other hobby that I could think of. You know, what I've, I've heard this, and I believe this to be true, and we're just about out, okay. is uh, you play for free, it's sitting up and tearing down is what you charge. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mike, thank you for doing this. This is a great piece of Cleveland County music history, and, and I appreciate you giving me the time to do this. Well, thank you, Sandy, and I appreciate it too, and I appreciate all the folks listening. All right, thank you. Uh-huh.